Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club Podcast, an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. Today, this episode is going to cover Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. With me to discuss this book are Lavana Lewis. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. I'm Lavana Lewis. I'm a member of the faculty at the Price School and also our Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And Olivia Olson. Hello, everyone. I'm Olivia Olson. I'm an undergraduate in Dornsife studying philosophy, politics, and law and economics. And I am a research assistant at the Bedrosian Center. And uh, so glad you're joining us again. Um, Christine Beckman, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm a professor um, in the Governance and Management and Public Policy Group um, and associate of the Center for Social Innovation. Well, thank you all for joining us. I was going to ask somebody to do a, a short summary of the book, but um, what I think I will do is say that I think this book makes a case that uh, the origin of our discontents is a caste system and that racism in the U.S. is part of the caste system. Um, and she compares the caste system in the U.S. to caste system in India and really makes an argument about caste and its uh, structures. Would you have anything else to add to that? So the only thing that I would add is that she also brings in uh, Nazi Germany. Oh, yes. And so uh, the fact for those who look at the United States right now and say that it's not that bad to listen to the litany, to, to listen to the, or to read that um, the Nazis came to the U.S. to learn from us how to subjugate people and to pass laws that that will separate folks and legitimize discrimination and hatred. That's an excellent. Anything else? That was a, that was a really powerful point of the book for me too. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it, it, it is about. I mean, I guess to me, in this, maybe you start get to a larger conversation, but. It felt really consistent to me with sort of the anti-racist uh, talks about systemic racism. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a way to to move us to the really thinking about structure and, um, and 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 power and and so I I, I you know I think initially um, that that what is caste exactly and it, it, you know it, it's a structure of of oppression and 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 that was really a, a useful way in, I thought, that, but was very consistent with a lot of other books that are great books that are, are out there too, um, in ways that they just use different language. And so that this, I thought this was an interesting language. I really liked thinking about both the cyclical nature of, of caste and how, you know, we make some increments trying to break free and then there's a backlash and um, those rules are sort of re-stratified in a different way. Um, and then also thinking about it in terms of India and how old that caste system is, and yet sort of the two largest democracies in the world, both having this sort of unwritten set of rules and structures that keep the order, per se. And I think you're right, uh, Christine, I, I really liked the idea of using caste as a different language into talking about um, systems of oppression. So let's um, talk about what what is caste? 
so I, I think um, there there are I think multiple definitions, but it really I think the one that I will, I will paraphrase, but ultimately becomes a state of mind where people are born into an identity and a place and they are locked in. There's a very real sense that you don't move, particularly if you're at the top or the bottom, right? Things in between may may change based on what the top says is important. But it really is a, it really is a message that basically says from birth, this is who you are. These are expectations for you. And if that is a problem for you, we're going to find ways to beat that problem out of you. <laughs> so, so, um, and to only to laugh to keep from crying. Uh, but again, a real sense of your destiny has been predetermined, and it takes something. I think the term was a supernova, or uh, heroic, for you to break free of that identity. Yeah, I was looking for the the quote in the book and and not finding it. But she's talking in a particular passage about distinguishing between caste and class and how mannerisms and behaviors, those are class things, accents, things that you can train yourself out of are representatives of class, whereas caste is immutable and unchangeable. And at another point, she says that that caste is the skin and racism and race are the bones. And so I think looking at this intersection of, of class and race and the permanence of caste, it, it's not just sort of the semantic argument, but she's really getting at a, a different angle on race and oppression in the United States and in India as well. Right. And to build on that, that, and that maybe this is part of the, the, the shape shifting she talks about. And so what that means is if, if things start to change, we're not going to get away from it. We're just going to sort of slightly tweak what we mean by that. Right. So that, you know, maybe then we're going to talk about gradations of color or maybe, you know, that, 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 that it's, it's because it's fixed. If there's a, a pressure to it that they can, that can't be bad down, we're just going to reshape it so that, so that the powerful and the dominant cast still maintains its power. Right. And, and that that's a, that's how it changes, not to get rid of it, but to just to, to, to shift it to look slightly different. It's so interesting to me how, you know, the this history that she takes us through to describe the American caste system. You're reading along and you're like, it's there and this is the caste system. And yet it really goes against this idea, this the American myth. And so we can hold this American myth of anyone can can succeed if they just work hard enough and that sort of individualism, and yet this unwritten, unacknowledged, um, especially in, in terms of politics, this caste, and how so many of us can recognize it, and yet those two things are sort of held at once. It's amazing that we aren't all crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, uh, I guess I was struck with the, with the irony of the, uh, the American dream, mm-hmm. right? And uh, one could call it uh, delusion or uh, for some folks, um, nightmarish. The author makes it very difficult to get through certain passages in this book, per- particularly for me as a, as a black woman and to and to recognize that um, the intention is to make sure that everyone that is black understands that you will always be at the bottom. 
And um, the sooner, and I, and I think what's so galling about it is that the intention is to make everybody else believe that no matter where they come from. Mm-hmm. So I can, re- I can remember very clearly having conversations with, with some of my international students uh, from Africa who bought into several of the myths about Black Americans that, that are so pervasive and to show them policies right, that, that kind of uh, directly attack the myth of laziness or the, the, the myth of if you just work hard enough and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can make it happen. So when you said that all of, so many of these laws are unwritten, I would say, well, not really, because there's a lot of policy that says, you know what, this is the way we like it. And so we're going to lock you in and lock these other folks out. And again, it just keeps moving. It's like I'm looking right now at the the voter suppression. I mean, people are acting like that's normal, right? But it's like, okay, so we lost. So we're going to make sure that that never happens again. So the, this kind of through line for me is just kind of uh, interesting, but we do need to help people to understand that um, so long as we believe the myth, we won't deal with the reality. And that's part of the issue, right? She talks about the fact that if you, if you don't see something as a problem, you're never going to get people interested in actually trying to do something about it. And maybe that's the goal, right? For people to stay blind to it, right? So uh, I'll stop talking. I, I need to be quiet. <laughs> well, I think you're absolutely right. I And um, in that a lot of the rules are explicitly written. I also think that there is a lot uh, that she talks about that, you know, is that unwritten, that there, this mix of formal and informal sort of norms and rules that, all work together. And I like that you keep using the the term locked in, because I think that also goes at a lot of the research, the, um, you know, economics, when uh, we talk about what zip code that you're born in, and particularly the book by the USC law professor, which is called Reproducing Racism. And she talks about all of the different studies that come to that locked in. That's a really good point. So you brought it up earlier, the part that is, I would say, mostly in the middle about Nazi Germany. It doesn't seem like it's new information, but it seemed like she really uh, laid it out in a different way to make it more striking and put in place with what's going on today. So it was new to me. So just just to say, like, and and, um, so I was talking about it with my husband and my kids who are my reveal my age or sort of Olivia's age and and uh they knew like so they had been taught um but my husband and I had had, that was new to us I thought that was somewhat encouraging yeah that that perhaps the history that that I learned didn't have that piece in it but but it was not something that was it it, it was a very powerful part of the book to me like that that whole section on on the history and and the and the Nazi Nazi Germany looking to us for ideas about how can we, you know, how can we oppress people? I mean, it was just horrifying. Um, but I, I guess to, just to the point of, um, um, so I don't, I don't know, if, I don't know if Olivia was surprised, but I, I was surprised, and um, and and I'm glad that not my my children were not. <laughs> That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, Olivia. Did did you know? <laughs> that part of history. What were the specific parts that you were referring to, Christine? Well, I was referring to the parts that, you know, they, I forgot, and I've got, they've got some, some of the quotes are in here, but the, um, before the Nuremberg laws, they sort of had a meeting, right, where they were trying to figure out how is it that we can put into place 
these things that are gonna that are gonna um, take you know take away the rights of Jews and and you know and so they looked at the policies and the rule the laws right this is the the visible part that Lovano was talking about that that we have in in America that made sure that the dominant caste stayed on top and and that the the lower caste was seen was dehumanized and all all of the things that she sort of lays out right they, they had very explicit discussions and they really didn't even believe that America was doing that they can't possibly be that explicit they thought because they have this rhetoric around every all men are created equally and they were sort of astounded at at how well we pulled off this this illusion of equality when we were so clearly um being dominating so is that it was it was to me that was one of the um the sections about it that and I just hadn't realized how how I mean, not that we didn't have those laws, but that that they that we that we were being used as the exemplar for how Nazi Germany could create something similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think that that's something that's been brought to our attention as a campus more recently with the renaming of VKC, and so looking at legacies of eugenicism and support of of Nazis in influential campus leaders and and leaders in the country. So I think that's a really interesting point to pick out. I have tons of notes here and I'm trying to look for the one that do, I think it was young people and in Germany, and they were talking about, you know, what, what should wait for Hitler. And the quote at the end of the chapter was to put him in black skin and have him live in America. And just to sort of tie into you know, the role that American policy and American oppression played in shaping, you know, Nazi policies at the beginning, that the the fate to which they, or at least the student believed that Hitler should be condemned is to be a Black man in America. There was another great part in that section that they they talking about, and so thinking about, thinking about this parallel, so I'm sorry, I found this part really fascinating. So, um, when the, when they, you know, would talk to the German youth today and say, okay, look, you know, how do we think about our history and, and compare that to what we do with ours? So first of all, right, that, that we don't have monuments and celebrate, they don't celebrate Nazism. Those are actually moments. Those are, those are, those are remembrances and memorials to the people that were killed, not to the leaders of the people that, so that was, that's certainly powerful, but, but then they, they so they talk about this and they ask the youth, what's your role here? Like, how should you think about this? Um, and can I just read, I want to read one paragraph. You know, so, you know, yes, we're Germans and Germans perpetuated this. Some students once told him, echoing what others have said. And though it wasn't just Germans, it's the older Germans who were here and who should feel guilt. We were not here. We ourselves did not do this. But we do feel that as a younger generation, we should acknowledge and accept the responsibility. And for the generations that come after us, we should be the guardians of that truth. I, I thought that was really powerful because I think it's often like, well, it wasn't us, you know, and the, the you know, the German youth are saying that's, that's not, that, that may be true. We weren't here, but that doesn't mean we're not responsible for making it better and, and keeping the truth alive. I thought that was a really also a good parallel with the U.S. And the, and the conversations that they have and the conversations that that we have where, you know, we don't look so good. I agree. I really loved that. And I, I think that that theme of what do we do as the inheritors of this injustice is really central to her work. And I love this analogy at the very beginning about America being an old house and that we, the current tenants, are not responsible for the lead in the paint or the fact that the the foundation wasn't made correctly. But 
it's it's our responsibility to address those problems now and that ongoing neglect is our responsibility. And I uh, grew up in a very old house with all sorts of problems. And so this work never being done and you finally fix something only to realize that there's a sump pump, whatever that is, (laughs) that really resonated with me and I thought was a really unique and powerful way of situating us and in how we move forward and how we take responsibility in a in a productive manner. So I, w- I would just like to say in response to that, what was striking to me was the, the contrast. You know, we, we talk about American exceptionalism all the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is exceptional and um, is our individualism. Some might call it selfishness, but our nation building was very much rooted and grounded in the power of the individual, right? And so we have we have a very hard time when we try to talk about a collective responsibility or a collective agenda. The fact that we would say that it's not in our collective interest to wear a mask, right? I mean, it's like, I, yes, I do have an individual choice, but my individual choice has a collective consequence. And so the, the fact that we're able to do that, and she, uh, she, she also talks about some of the individual policies that we have, but I think it's striking because in that type of an environment, it's very difficult to talk about, well, what are we going to do about it? It's about either I want to do something or I don't. And so consequently, you have these, these kind of, you know, kind of uneven efforts because again, if you're always waiting on, you know, the individual to, to make the quote right decision. Um, again, when you're getting a critical mass, it's going to take time. And so that, that tension was there for me. And, and I saw it because it's always, you know, again, it's always this question about how can someone make a decision that's not in their best interest when, again, that interest is played against. If I get a house, then that means that black person may get a house. So I'll just make sure that we don't pass policies that give other people houses. Right. So, so that, that kind of, uh, you know, for, for me was insanity and to see that played out over and over again, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I remember the first time I heard about the, the social security policy that made a conscious decision to keep farm workers and domestics out, right. Of social security benefits, basically saying we don't care about those people, what we, what we care about everybody else. And so to, to recognize that as a fundamental policy decision. And so to just kind of see that played out over and over and over again was kind of, like I said, it's, you know, I, the, the fact that we don't know our history is not accidental, right? We are socialized not to know the ugly parts about our history. And that has consequences because obviously we keep repeating it. Uh, we were talking about um, the book Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum this morning. And I think it might have been Richard who said it first, but that uh, Americans are terrible at history. And another theme, yes, we're terrible at history. Because <laughs> it, it's too threatening, right? I mean, it's, it, it's just the, I mean that individualism that Lavana was talking about is so deep. Uh, so to think about it as structural, as collective, like all uh, the, the truth of what of what these things are, which are that they, 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 these are collective problems and they're structural problems, is just something that that it, that we are very resistant to as an American culture to sort of acknowledge. And and the problem is right; they are systemic, and no amount of individual action is gonna <laughs> is gonna get us to a different place. 
I do think that the the historical elements of this book were one of the most important parts of the read. I mean, I had a stomach ache the entire time that I was reading this book. And I considered myself to have done a lot of research and reading on the history of, of race in this country and still found that there were so many things that I had never heard of and that are really important to understanding where we're at right now. And so I think a, a huge value of this book is really taking us from slavery to the present and all of the horror in between and really situating our present moment in centuries and centuries of oppression, bringing it to the present with her personal experiences, and then additionally looking at this different bent of caste rather than race or class. So I, I think it was really incredible and, and, and did so much. It made me actually, I, I agree. And I, I have not yet read Stamped from the beginning, but I've heard that that is a, a great, it made me want to go read more on sort of the, the history uh, that I that I feel like I, I missed um, and that I didn't get. So I, I, I agree. And it made me want to even go go deeper and read more books on, on the history here. <laughs> I think that's also one of the the messages of the book in the sense that we can, if we're willing, grow ourselves, educate ourselves, develop ourselves out of this way of thinking. So whenever we have this kind of um, discussion, I'm always reminded of the, you mentioned earlier, Aubrey, this issue of backlash, right? So the backlash against 16, 19 and people learning that that history was you know, let's have patriotic education, the 1776 project. Like, I mean, there's like, we get that, I mean, on steroids, right? Do we really need to relive that? But let's learn more about the, the history of indigenous people in this mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. I mean, what does it mean in terms of, again, our nation building that we, that we've made a series of decisions again, that, you know, that kind of uh, structure our current reality, but again, still, the pushback is, you know, to, to I think uh, both uh, Olivia and Christina have said something similar. You know, I wasn't here back then, so I'm not responsible. Right. It's like, why should I have to pay for somebody else's decision? Uh, forget the fact that I'm reaping the benefits of somebody else's decision. But let's not talk about possible consequences and me having to uh, invest in some of that redress. And so it's just kind of uh, in interesting to me, the kind of the back and forth. Uh, throughout. One of the things that underlies a lot of this is our free market system, the capitalist system, <laughs> and how much we value money as success. And I think it was in Reproducing Racism that, that uh, she talks about whiteness as a cabal. And I was thinking how well that fit into this, this caste system, that the sort of dominant caste is the mafia, keeping everything, everyone else fighting for scraps and how the, the caste system really does just make everything a competition. And so that's also where the individualism comes from because you, you know, it's not a team sport. It's everybody, every person for himself, you know, and that was sort of baked into it. And then, you know, we had Ayn Rand and the virtue of selfishness and it's not, necessarily worse, but it's different now. You know, after Barack Obama and she talks about this, this that we've got Trump and um a party that doesn't actually want to govern <laughs> in the federal system. So I think the other the other really great part of the book was when she's talking about 
um, the pillars. Um, what are the, the, basically the structure of how cast comes together. So the first is that um, it's uh, hereditary. You're born into your cast, which also seems to go against that American dream. So we have these two things coexisting, this idea, the dream, the sort of myth that we're told that we are living under, and yet we really are all born into our cast. Before we jump to that, I mean, I do think that that's a, to me, the zero stakes, the, the, the zero sum stakes of this, I think are really important in it. Um, I mean, this is the cap the capitalism point around right. I mean, capitalism creates inequality, and 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 then, and then there's a scarcity of of who has what, and so that so if you get ahead, it might it might mean that I can't get ahead, and and it goes back to this you know collective versus the individual, and I mean it's part of I think why we're so invested in we as America like like the American system is so set up to, to sort of keep the caste system as it, as it exists because. Because there is a scarcity, there is this inequality, and I just wanted to agree with you. Like that, 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 that feels really important to why we're sort of why, why it's why we've been so stuck and how hard it is to get out of it. I I, I read a book by Early Hostile. Um, I just blinked on the name, uh, but it's it's about. But she has this analogy of of um, people think you know that the the, the blacks are cutting in line. Um, and and it is this sense like that if you get something, it's going to be less for me, and so it, it, that that's a re- I think a real uh, the zero sum part I think was is really important and related to the capitalism piece. Yeah, I mean I I um, so I, I remember one one example, and this was when they were talking about um, the caste system in India and um, talking about someone in the top tier that got up from their desk walked through the office, down the hall, just to get somebody from the low caste to come in to pour their water that was on their desk. Mm -hmm. So this idea that I can never let my guard down, I can never... I can never give the perception that you're my equal and that you will ever be, right? That constant drumming in of that message, right? Again, to, to, to your point, Aubrey, from birth. I mean, it's like, you know, people people talk. It's like I, I don't have children, but people talk about the conversations that they have to have with their kids. And the caste system colors the conversation that you have to have with your kids if you want them to survive. Mm-hmm. Because violence was also one of those pillars that that they talk about in terms of how do you hold it up? Right. The, the fact that if you want to survive you know, is how you're feeling really worth giving it voice, right? And so, so that, that just that kind of basic sense of those, those constant struggles that you have to do, right? I mean, it, it talks about the wisdom from beneath, right? It's like, the, the, it's like, I have to be able to navigate these spaces if I'm going to survive. It's like, not that people care one way or the other if I survive, but for my own benefit, these are the ways I have to navigate this space and to be very proficient at it. Again, uh, I'd say it's kind of struck me across the different groups, Nazi, uh, US, and also the India. I wanted to add on to the the first prong of what you were saying when you were talking about the the high caste individual who walks down the hall to ask the, the lower caste individual to get the water for them. I was really struck by the way that contact between castes is totally acceptable 
when it's in the context of service or subservience. And there's a, a quote on page 130 that puts this in the American context. And it's talking about this man who felt an automatic revulsion that had been trained into him every time he shook the hand of a Black person. And there's a quote at the bottom of the page that said, he recoiled even though it had been a Black woman who bathed him as a child, had mixed the dough for his biscuits, and whose touch had not repulsed him when extended in servitude. But when presumed equals, I felt the urge to wash my hands. In so many ways, such a depressing book. Um... <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I think I'm, I'm following the Lavana Lewis uh, make a joke so that <laughs> you don't cry. I think what is so amazing about this book is is how it's taking so many of the different things that have been happening in pop culture and putting it into this historic perspective. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask about um, the pillars, there's a bunch that I want to talk about, but I, I want to get to the idea of how important marriage and who can marry who is <laughs> i think we forget how it it's only been recently that blacks and whites have been able to marry which is crazy but that in some ways the ruling class the dominant caste is willing to accept gay marriage faster than willing to accept interracial marriage and is that 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 is one of the things that that really outlines where the cat like the cast because white gay men might be above you know and how quickly sort of we pivoted as a nation to approving gay marriage versus how quickly it happened in the mid 20th century to accept interracial marriage just got me thinking no i mean i i think you you raise an important point which I mean, which basically says that, you know, if it's good for the dominant group, it must be good for everyone. Right. Right. And then the, if the dominant group says that they want it, then we've got to find a way to make it happen. I would push back a little bit in terms of, again, to, to, to say that there are still people that are actively fighting against gay marriage. So it's not a settled issue. But I, I do think that the fact that how nimble we can be when it serves the interest of those at the top, it's like I could go off off script and talk about COVID-19 and how quickly we we flipped for that mm -hmm. in terms and even in the early days, how it benefited the upper class whites. And so um, and the fact that in the state of Florida, you have to have a doctor's note to get a COVID vaccine. Right. So you justify rushing it to other people and then you, you continue to write, you know, put policies in place that keep people at the back of the line. You know, it, it's just it's just kind of interesting. And again, the fact that we would put these things in place, right? So that to hold everything up, you know, to uh, to say that these are these are the the non-negotiables, the stakes in the ground. If you want yours, your oppressive system to work, put these in place. And like I say, we guarantee you'll be successful. So I don't know if that was a playbook or a horror story, but I think it's. I mean, the it, it depends on kind of your your interpretation, but um, yeah. I can't find that line. I, I was looking for it earlier, but in that part about the Nazis and how <laughs> they wouldn't go as far as we did in America because that was a little too much. So, you know, I think that perspective is, um, again, I'm, I'm uncomfortably laughing. Um, you know, when we, we talk about the Holocaust and 11 million dying, but, um, I don't think that we've ever really reckoned on a grand scale with the the genocide that America 
is founded upon um, and not just of Native Americans, but plundering of Africa and African peoples and just blood. Uh, and to your point, uh, Levana, I, I would say that there are also still people who uh, are fighting interracial marriage. So, you know, I don't think those things are going away, unfortunately. There are just so many things that that stick in my head um, from the book, just uh, the inhumanity and the indecency and um, mm. talking about uh, in Germany having uh, having Jews who were day in and day out baking bread that they could never eat, mm-hmm. right? Uh, making a conscious decision that the ones that were the most productive, and this was across the board in all three caste systems, undernourishing them, mm-hmm. right? So, so punishing them for being successful at the task that they were given. I mean, it, it was just, it was just horrific that the ends that people were willing to go to just to send the message. You exist in this time and place because I say you do. And what you can do is totally dependent upon me. And it is, again, your willingness to accept that categorization that means that you might survive to see another day. Like I say, it was really just kind of, it was, it was, I, like Olivia said, it just makes, it makes your stomach tight to think of that level of inhumanity and just, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll stop at inhumanity because some other words may not be appropriate for this uh, platform. <laughs> <laughs> You were allowed to curse if you were, but I've never heard you curse, Lavana. Um Well, that's the pillar of de- you know, the, the pillar of dehumanization and stigma um, is one of the right one of her pillars, along with terror and cruelty. Terror and cruelty. I was just thinking, um, you know, recently we we lost the chance to uh, raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars federally, and I was thinking of the cruelty of the one Democrat from. Arkansas, who, you know, her vote was a, a saunter up to the, the stage and a thumbs down and a little curtsy, you know, that cruelty, the way it's been dressed up. And so all the different levels of kinds of cruelty, because we get into policing and we get into. But I think that's that's part of it. The the kind of the, the radical empathy that she talks about is kind of an antidote. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, to think about the fact that we in this country can live very segregated lives, right? Very homogeneous lives, um, you know, where everybody's reading from the same script. And so developing an empathy that gets past kind of a superficial, what is it like, but to really kind of feel, I mean, it's like to, to feel the pain. I mean, it's like for someone in the midst of horrific deaths in Atlanta, mm-hmm to say that somebody was having a bad day, mm-hmm. where does that come from, right? I mean, is, is that is that as far as you can take it because they don't look like you? Is that it's a bad, or he looks like you, so you can understand how he can have a bad, I mean, it was, it, it's just, it's just amazing when you can look at people as others or, you know, animals or property, there's, there, there's no limit to what you can do or what you can say, because, you know, it means nothing because they mean nothing. And that's that's kind of that's kind of what you get. You exist because, again, you meet a need. And so long as you're doing that, then we're OK. But cross the line and you're going to see another side of 
you know, this great democracy. Lavana, I'm looking for the passage. Do you have her definition of radical empathy handy? Because I thought that that was really well done. Somewhere in my sea of sticky notes, but not very helpful to me right now. <laughs> That's because there's so many sticky notes. So many. I, have, <laughs> I have dog ears. There's so many dog ears. I have a lot of them too. A lot of underlines. Okay, I found it. Um, and so it's actually on page uh, 386. Yep, I found it too. Okay. It says empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is looking across at someone and feeling sorrow, often in times of loss. Uh, Empathy is not pity. Pity is looking down from above and feeling distant sadness for another in their misfortune. And then it says empathy is commonly viewed as putting yourself in someone else's shoes and imagining how you would feel. That could be seen as a start but it's little more than role-playing and it's not enough in the rupture world we're in. Radical empathy, on the other hand, means putting in the work to educate oneself and listen with a humble heart to understand another's experience from their perspective, not as we imagine uh, we would feel. Radical empathy is not about you and what you think you would do in a situation you've never been in and perhaps never will. It's the kindred connection from a place of deep knowing that opens your spirit to the pain of another as they perceive it. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a totally different different level of uh, engagement. I mean, it, it's saying, it's like, I, it's like even though I'll, I, I'll never know what it's like, but I, I help me to, to at least see it through your eyes. And again, to, I don't think that we, we have that enough. Right. We, we can, you know, I, I, I celebrate the fact that I get to, you know, teach a social justice class and get students to reflect on some of these issues. And, you know, I, I can see, you know, the, the development, I can see their eyes opening up because again, we live in a society that socialized us not to know these things. And since we don't know, we don't care. Right. And so what happens when I get another set of lenses to look at these issues through what happens then? So that's what I meant when I said that um, she really does send a message that we can educate ourselves out of this way of thinking. Uh, But again, there has to be a conscious decision to do it because it's not you're not going to get a lot of support because, again, the support is for the status quo and locking us into, again, our positions. And and I think that Elizabeth, uh, Isabel, sorry, I don't know who Elizabeth is. She did not write this book. Isabel Wilkerson, that she does a really good job of situating her readers to engage with this radical empathy. I think she's really vulnerable in these experiences that she shares. The one that stood out to me the the most was when she's coming to interview. It's on page uh, 60 and 59. In Chicago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she goes to this office and she's sitting there And he refuses to meet with her, that there is no way that she could be Isabel Wilkerson, that she must be Elizabeth instead. And I just, my jaw dropped when I was reading it. And I just, I felt like I was there, but I also couldn't comprehend what it would be like to be there and to experience that. And so I think that the way that throughout this book, she talks about these personal experiences that are so harrowing, so dehumanizing. It puts the reader in her shoes in, in a really personal way and allows this sort of radical empathy to take place organically and to have people really consider 
how something like this would never happen to them and the injustice that it's happened to her and so many people who look like her. And to sort of build on that, I found those really powerful too. And I, but I also found really powerful and I also found really powerful the examples of the, the really subtle things. And so she, she, there's one part where she's, she's at a conference around caste. And so she's interacting with um, Indians and different cat. And so she learned how to, she could tell by how they talked, by they held, how they held themselves, who was a dominant caste and who was the lower caste. And, and they were, the, the, the other members of the conference were amazed that she, she was so good at being able to, to read into the body language and the subtle signs that, that the dominant caste, and these are people that were against caste and, and they wanted, they wanted to, they were there to talk about, you know, it's injustices, but still people carried with them their, their training and their, their upbringing. And I, I was struck by that as a, as a white woman, I, you know, I think a lot about all the things that I, that I do unintentionally and, and to really learn how to be intentional and really see the things that I have done instinctively my whole life. I also thought was really thought provoking, made me think really a lot about how I carry myself in the world. Since we're talking about the kind of the the personal stories that just kind of really hit you and that really got you, I think the ones that that got to me were were the series of scenarios that she did when she was traveling. Yeah. With the last one being, I mean, this guy just, I mean, just totally, I mean, it's like she wasn't even there, resenting her being in first class. Mm-hmm. And so did everything that they could to make her being in first class uncomfortable and to, you know, just just not basically not care how she felt about it. Right. That that was one. And then when she was having dinner with one of her white female friends. Right. Who, again, is used to a certain treatment when she's with her other dominant group friends seeing that that a party of that dominant group getting the first class service that she's used to. But because she was sitting with a black woman, she wasn't getting that type of service. And she told the white woman, she just totally went off. <laughs> she was telling me, like, I want to see it's like I want to see everybody in this organization because this is unacceptable. And her response being being all, all of these mixed emotions. Right. I wish it hadn't happened. It's like I'm used, it's like you can't do that every day. If you if I responded every day, I'd be going off every day. Number two, the fact that she celebrated the fact that her friend noticed it and wanted to do something about it. Right. And so just just the kind of the the duality of it. Right. I mean, just to to kind of see that this is this is what it's like. Right. And if you don't understand that, again, it's like every day is going to be a challenge because there's every day there's going to be a reason to go off. But if you do that, then you don't have time for anything else. Um, I I found it interesting too that um, she chose those travel vignettes because that is the way Claudine Rankin begins just us is is traveling and and talking to white men as she's traveling. It picks up all of those little threads uh, that are that are just you know sort of hanging around in in our culture and weaving them into the story of cast. It's just kind of amazing. I, I'm <laughs> the more I'm thinking about this book, the more I'm like, she just did such an amazing job, you know, particularly making sure that we're talking about India um, in particular, because India is also facing this sort of move towards authoritarianism with Modi. 
So we've got these two democracies, these two caste systems. And when I first learned of the Indian caste system, I was just like, oh, it's it's awful, you know, and then realizing that you've been a part of a caste system. Yeah, I had a, I had a student once, Aubrey, who an Indian, an Indian student, um, and we were talking about it was, it was a class on diversity and uh, is a master's student and in a business school, not a, not a public policy school. Um but but we were talking about it, and he said something to the effect of, "You Americans are always talking about race. You know, we just don't have these issues in India." <laughs> and and you know, the other students sort of you know, it, it clearly showed where he came from, right, and what caste he was part of. That he 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 legitimately just thought this was such an American thing that they didn't have these problems in India. Um, and I just remember being so so I, I you know, uh, just to to the to the point, yes. I, not, we we have a caste system, and so do they. And I think when you're in it, um, when you're living it, um, it if, if you're the dominant caste, it, everything around you reinforces it. Um, uh, it's so it's so, and it's so pleasant, right? Why, why, so seeing it is is uncomfortable. So I want to bring up two things now. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Parasite. Yes. So as I'm reading, um, there were a lot of times where I was like, oh. <laughs> Parasite, you know? So I, I think, um, that is one of the ways that I was thinking about, um, cast because I had recently watched the film Parasite. So, um, Korean. What film. do you mean by what did you see? I, I haven't seen it recently. So I don't, I'm not remembering what the. So, you know, it's the, it's a very poor family, uh, in Korea and they sort of have to, in order to get good jobs, they had to sort of fake their way into it because it's all about networking and who you know. And so the son has a wealthy college friend. And so they sort of fake their way in to doing jobs. There's, you know, the dad becomes a driver. The mom becomes the housekeeper. Um, the sister is teaching the child art. Um, and so they're, they're doing the work. They're qualified for it. Um, and then they find the other couple living in the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want to give any spoilers. So what's interesting to me, Aubrey, is I thought that that was about class, going back to where all of, uh, mm-hmm. Olivia started and thinking about caste versus class, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they could pretend, like they could fake it. They could, they, they could get away with that. And t- I mean, until they don't. Well, so, you know, the thing about it that really got me is at the end, you know, the upper caste, the, the wealthy family that everyone is working for, you know, the father is so um, disdainful of the way the kins smell and had this really visceral reaction. He was like, people who ride the subway, you know, smell a certain way. And that sort of, no matter how hard you're working, there's always something to reinforce that. Now, do I know whether Korean society would necessarily be a caste system? I don't know. But there was, you know, it was a lot about class, but it also was about how though that structure forced the sort of lower caste, the lower class to fight amongst themselves in order to get the scraps. Yeah. So that was one of the things I just, I kept seeing Mr. Park making a the face. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. I would th- definitely. I didn't tell you how it ended, but, yeah. <laughs> but stay. Lots of good surprises in there. Uh, um, I want to pick up that point that you, that you made, uh, Arby, about the fighting amongst the lowest group. And Wilkerson mentions it. She mentions it in terms of again, um, 
you know, black on black kinds of issues. But there's also fighting across the ladder. Mm-hmm. Right. And before before this taping, I was in a session looking, you know, listening to folks in terms of, you know, what should we be doing to support the Asian Pacific Islander community? Right. And they're already talking about we're being ignored and it's just a black white issue. Right. And so instead of it being why aren't we fighting white supremacy mm-hmm. is we're fighting each other for crumbs. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and that's I think that's one of the most there were, there were several frightening things in the book. Yeah. But one of the most frightening things in the book was the fact that because of that fighting in our current moment, we may end up in a worse situation than we're in right now. And so this idea of that is in our hands and people need to understand that we're either going to end up in a worse situation or better. There is no going back to the way that it used to be as much as people want that to happen. We're either going to be worse or we're going to get better. And so that is that is what's on the table. Right. And so to to kind of think about that. And again, it's, it's those folks who, you know, those different rungs of the ladder that are going to have to um, determine that because the the ones at the top clearly know what they want. Um, and so we, we really got to kind of think about what does that mean in terms of, again, uh, kind of how we think about building coalitions across and within groups. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was struck when she was talking about South Africa. Uh, and, and sort of the comparison with, right, so the demographics uh, are pretty clear, right, uh, that whites are, are going to be the minority in in the U.S. And so what, right, and so the, the voter suppression, like those things that, that Levon was talking about earlier, right, those are clearly, okay, if, we're, if we want to maintain our dominant caste as white, uh, you know, as white supremacists, we, we have to keep those voices down, right? So that's one possibility. The other is this, this shape-shifting that the South Africa example sort of brings about, right, around changing what it means to be dominant and then sort of letting new people in to the dominant caste that wouldn't have been so that they, you can get them on your side and then you then you have enough numerical. Right? And so I think that's where the infighting and that that, it, 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 that is really problematic because right, right, the goal here should be to dismantle the caste system. And, and if we're not careful... Right. We've got the keeping the down and then bringing a few people in to sort of keep the dominance. I think those are the two real those are the strategies, if you will. Right. Of, 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 of that we learn from South Africa that we should be really keeping an eye out on. Eye, eye out for. Yeah, I think that was really interesting. The fact that we have this two tiered caste system, that there's not the way that it is in India, all of these subcasts and larger groupings that allow for there to be a more stratified system of oppression that there in in the United States, it's really black and white. And that this pattern of new immigrant groups coming to the United States who come and they are oppressed, but then they work to differentiate themselves from particularly black people. And she talks about acts of violence perpetrated against black people by, I remember one was Italians and I'm, I'm not remembering all of the, the other groups, but the fact that people are are galvanized to become violent actors to differentiate themselves from the bottom caste to be accepted as white. I I thought that that was a a really nuanced point and really troubling, but well-argued. Yeah. I mean, I, um, again, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting conversation. I mean, to, 
you know, people are very used to the model minority mythology. And so, again, the there's a history that some people are just learning for the first time. And again, it is really overwhelming the intentions to keep people from not knowing. I mean, it's like, you know, to to really think about people actually making decisions about what's going to be covered because it it may mess with people's ideas about who we are. I mean, it's like I use a video in my some of my DEI work that a few years ago was banned in Connecticut because it made people so uncomfortable, right, to really think about structural racism that it's like, we're, we're just not going to deal with that. And the same thing came from the previous administration. We don't really want people thinking about privilege and advantage and disadvantage. So we're going to just we're going to take all the money that we possibly can out of that and suck all the oxygen out of it. Right. The fact that, again, that we would intentionally keep people with one script, knowing how harmful and how inadequate that one script is for the reality. And so I I think the the quotes about, you know, where would we be if we hadn't worked so hard to deny people opportunity? Where, Where could we possibly be if we weren't so good at killing people's dreams, right? And so to get, kind of think about, you know, the, the collective consequence of that for us as a nation state, right? I mean, we deal with the fact that we kept some folks from developing into their full potential and we have to live with that. Was it Satchel Paige, the, the baseball player that and just to uh, give an example for your point, Lavana, I was just, I mean, a name I'd never heard before and a name that we all should have heard. And he's talking about, you know, not having been able to participate in his prime. And ultimately he's the oldest in the league and then he's older than the managers and he's still this standout star. And the section is concluding with some interviewer saying, oh, isn't this great? And said, no, you know, I, I should have been here in my prime and should have had the opportunity to compete at this level. I mean, what a heartbreak. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because again, I, I had heard the name and actually my dad played in the Negro League. So I, I knew some of that, but I mean, just, I didn't know he could throw a hundred, a hundred mile an hour fastball. Right. With accuracy such that people were okay with him throwing a ball at their face to knock a cigarette out of their mouth. Really? It's like, really? But again, I can't imagine anyone doing that today. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, You know, and that's just one story. I just want to add really quick. She used the word barnstorming to mean traveling around from barn to barn, from, from city, you know, town to town for entertainment. And that is the first time I've heard that word in that way because I come from Pennsylvania Dutch country where they do barnstorms, which is like they, the whole community comes together and they put up the barn in two minutes in, in the Amish community. And just thinking about the, the, those two meanings, it just was a little bit of a, an aside, but deeper into the, the levels of which we go to delude ourselves as a nation. Um, anyway, that was just an aside. <laughs> I can't do a different aside. Um, I, I was really pleased. Um, I watched a documentary about Paul Williams, an LA architect, sort of one of the early African American, incredibly successful architects of 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 the, you know, the um, early 1920s. You know, sort of early 
Um, and she talks about this architect who had to learn how to write upside down um, because yeah. his clients didn't, wouldn't have wanted to get too close to him. And so by being upside down, he could sort of, uh, he, he could do his work. And she doesn't name him actually in the book, but I was so pleased to like, I, I know who she's talking about. I just, and, and he's an LA architect. So I, that there was, sort of, was that sort of Los Angeles um, connection, but, but, you know, th- I mean, this was a man that did become successful. Um, but right to the, st- I think the same, the point is still there, like, you know, what he had to do <laughs> to even have those opportunities um, and, and the opportunities he could have had if he hadn't been fighting all of the, the fights he had. I mean, they make the point in the documentary that, that it was really Los Angeles was a good place to be. There was a lot of Jews. Uh, and so the people that were hiring him sort of didn't have some of the same bias that he might have experienced in other parts of the country. Um, but like just also that this, I guess, also gets back to the helping people rather than sort of fighting against each other to keep each other down. But I was so pleased to see Paul Williams, <laughs> LA architect. This is sort of tangential to, to your point, Christine, but you mentioned that she didn't name names. And that's true throughout, whether it's a positive or a negative. And, and what do you think the value is or the missed opportunity? Or what, what do you think about the decision to not say who the person that she was supposed to interview who ushered her out who what is the point you think is it is it courtesy is it courtesy that she owes anyone or is it radical empathy that if she were in that place she wouldn't want to be called out in in a permanent book like this but that that person might recognize himself i'm assuming that was bad of me but i'm assuming a him <laughs> Go ahead, Lavana. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I, I, I think I was just, I was just thinking about Olivia's point in terms of naming names and not naming names. And so, I, to to your point, Aubrey, I, I think it was she talks about forgiveness too. So empathy, forgiveness. I don't, I don't know what's going on, but again, uh, she did some stuff that I probably might not do at this point in my life. But anyway. <laughs> So, but one of, one of the things that struck me, one of the things that just really ticked me off was she goes into this story about these researchers doing this very detailed mm, yeah. research in the South, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the covert things that they had to do to actually kind of get it done, right? Black and white couples just so that they could experience what, what it was really like. In the 40s. Yeah. I mean, had to, had to do all of these manipulations games to actually get the work done. And then the the fact that they weren't allowed to present the research first. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, two people that spent maybe like 30 minutes in the area got to do these kind of field defining books on the topic. And it's those it, and it's those things, right? The that not just just not wanting people to get the credit mm-hmm. for their work and their ideas, right? And so that that to me, in terms of the the naming names, right? All the things that we're finding out that people discovered um, that they'll never get credit for, right? Um, you know, Henrietta Lacks, right? I mean, just things. I mean, the, the fact that I mean, as a health person, all that stuff around health was appalling to me. Yeah. Right. The the fact that we can justify experimenting on this group of people just to make things better for another group of people. 
mm-hmm. and to to and to realize that that legacy is still there. People in you know in the health professions are still under prescribing mm-hmm. pain meds for people of color, mm-hmm. right? Because the 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 people that established the field said that they can handle pain better. I mean, it, it was it was there just so much, and you know, just this is a it's a very emotional book. But you, you can't walk. I mean, you can't. I mean, I couldn't put it down, even though I wanted to. It sometimes put it down. It's like, you know, I've got to see how this ends because I mean, I've got, I got to, I've got to play this to the end, not just because of this, but because it was so. It was just, it was just a compelling piece of work, and I really, um, I really enjoy. It seems like the wrong word, but it was, it was a very necessary read for me because, again, it's, it's a reminder that. If we're going to make changes, then we've got to be messengers that get around these dominant narratives that people are that have been in existence for generations. Mm-hmm. Right. That we can't just come at it with one stomp speech and figure out, you know, uh, mission accomplished. Right. It's like, you know, I don't even know. If, you know, it's, it's yeah, there, there has to be some nimbleness. There has to be some courage to this work. Or again, it's like people will continue to think that they're not part of the problem. Yeah, Lavana, what you just said <laughs> about the the single narrative and challenging the single narrative, I think really gets to the heart of my question. Because in, in not naming names of people who were these really wrongful transgressors, she talked about how, you know, there's a bigger system and that she talks a little bit about virtue signaling and cancel culture and how, you know, if I were to say these names not only does it make it an individual problem versus a systemic problem, I just don't think that that's productive. And I thought that that was really interesting and that it allowed us to look at the issue rather than the individual. And the the reason that I brought up the question initially is because I I think that's becoming increasingly rare, that there's the the social media upload about something that happened and they name names and it's this big thing for a couple of weeks and then it's gone because it was focused on that individual. And while there's certainly value in identifying people who are racist or who have made racist remarks, I think that her approach here was really interesting. And as much as you were kind of digging for that name and wondering if you could find out who it was on your own, I thought that there was something powerful about taking the high road when you shouldn't have to take the high road. It's a, it's a really good, it was a good, it's a good question. I mean, as we were talking, it made me think that the name and the name she does call out are the people that we should know, right? Uh, most often, right? And so the, you know, the anthropologists, right? I feel like I want that's Allison and Elizabeth Davis. I feel like like we should we should say their names, right? That, that they were the ones doing this work in Natchez, Mississippi, um, right? And and they don't get the credit that they deserve. So I think she was very good about about naming names when they were people that had been not recognized that should have gotten recognition. Um, and I think I think you're right too about the one of the reasons not to name names is to point out that it's too easy. She said, I think she says this, right? It's too easy to otherwise to think that that's the problem. And if we, if it's, if we get rid of those people, it will, it will go away. And I, I want to read one more, one more quote. It's exactly on this point. One of my, one of my powerful ones, you know, the enemy, the threat is not one man. It is all of us. It, it is us, all of us lurking in humanity itself. And I think that's why, to me, that's why she doesn't name names is because 
otherwise we, we get off too easy uh, to blame someone. I feel like there's a lot more that we could talk about. So we can bring those things up as we're doing our last questions. Um, uh, did you like the book? So Lavana, did you like the book? Yes, I liked the book. Um, as, as I said earlier, I mean, I think looking at cast through the three different countries was very powerful. So again, for us who always run to American exceptionalism, it's, it's a reminder that, you know, um, not so much. Um, there was history. Mm-hmm. There was a through line there that says, you know, um, we, we can't deny that this is this has been our journey and that this is our story. And so, um, you know, but also, I guess for me, there, there was hope in the sense that, again, uh, we do have weapons against it. And part of the, the weapons in our arsenal is just empathy, radical empathy that, that, again, suspends our comfort zone and really begins to think about what is it really like to, to live on the other side of the door. Who should read it? Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I would agree. I mean, again, it um, certainly from I would say from um, from high school on up. I I don't know if uh, middle schoolers and below could kind of process all this coming at them. But I think I think that, uh, you know, high schoolers and up are engaged in kind of a discovery process about who am I and where do I fit in? And for them to understand that there, there is an infrastructure in place. I think is important to know. And again, for those folks who are coming from those very homogeneous, we only have one script that we've ever read, they would benefit from this book because again, it tells a story that again is um, that we share with other parts of the world. And that's a great point, Lavana. So maybe I want to revise slightly my every my everyone to all white Americans above age 16. Because I think getting to Christine's point earlier about her Indian student who is from an upper caste, not realizing that there were any inequality issues in in India. I don't know that black people need to read this because they, they know that there is this entrenched system of caste in America because they've They've had to live it and experience it, but they should still read it because it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant, but you know, I think along with how to be an anti-racist and stamp from the beginning by Kendi, I think the biggest contribution is is the language. I mean, it's the the history as well, but I think it's also the language um, that allows you to recognize your place in the caste system, in the racial hierarchy. And also separate yourself from it in saying, like, I was born into this. I can't control that. So what matters is what I do now. And I think, you know, that adding that part in about the the German young, not young children, but young adults saying, you know, we need to be guardians of the truth. I think guardians of the truth were in academia, like, we should be guardians of the truth. And we aren't always, you know, and, you know, practicing that radical empathy also should be part of what, you know, we model going forward. But I have the same pit in my stomach all the way through that, yeah. that um, Olivia and Lavana talked about. So, but I, I thought it was really well, well done, you know, not, not easy to read. The stories made it very accessible. I mean, to your point about, about how it relates to other books, I think this idea of of getting us a, you know, giving us an alternative to the word 
racism and the and, and how easy it is to say, well, I'm not, and there's not a racist bone in my body, right? I mean, so sort of that these easy, easy things that that people can say that sort of then minimize that that sort of take and this sort of says you know it's not that simple. Like it's structural. It's that's why I liked, I was particularly liked the alternative language to to that, you know, and someone will try and appropriate it no undoubtedly, but but it, but it sort of it, it made it hard to sort of ignore the structure uh, and the systemic part of it, which I was one of the things I really liked about it. So, Christine, you shared some of your favorite passages. Um, Lavana or Olivia, do you have a favorite passage? And uh, Christine, if you have another one you want to share, that's fine too. <laughs> I, I, sh- I shared plenty. I didn't let other people share. Sorry. You know, I already touched on mine. As much as it was difficult to hone in on one thing in particular, I just loved the way that she talked about Americans as inheritors of this old house and our ongoing responsibility to maintain, address underlying problems because we are the tenants living with the consequences of that which was created by the builders. And I just thought that that was a really unique take on why we need to care, why we need to be invested, and why we have an ongoing responsibility to rectify the problems in this country. So um, I've got two passages. One that the first one is what it says about us. And then the second one is kind of what I felt she said about me. So uh, in this on page 43 of early on, Americans are loath to talk about enslavement in part because what little we know about it goes against our perception of our country as a just and enlightened nation, a beacon of democracy for the world. Slavery is commonly dismissed as a sad, dark chapter in this country's history. It's as if the greater distance we can create between slavery and ourselves, the better to stave off the guilt or shame it induces. But in the same way that individuals cannot move forward, become whole and healthy, unless they examine the domestic violence they witnessed as children or the alcoholism that runs in their family, The country cannot be whole until it confronts what was not a chapter in its history, but the basis of its economic and social order. For a quarter of a millennium or for a quarter millennium, slavery was the country. And then this is what she said that, again, it's something that I've I've often kind of felt about myself. And so um, I had to pin it as well. It's on page 293. And it says, from the start of the caste system in America, people who were lowest caste, but who had managed somehow to rise above their station, have been the shock troops on the front lines of hierarchy. People who who appear in places or positions where they are not expected can become foot soldiers in an ongoing quest for respect and legitimacy in a fight they had hoped was long over. That is my reality. And so I consider myself somebody that's operating on the front lines. And so, yeah, those both spoke to me for different reasons. Thank you. I I had a lot of trouble thinking about one thing. So I wanted to point out something um, on the very last page, 388. She says, in a world with outcasts, Instead of a false swagger over our own tribe or family or ascribed community, we would look upon all humanity with wonderment. The lithe beauty of an Ethiopian runner, the bravery of a Swedish girl determined to save the planet, the physics-defying aerobatics of an African-American Olympian, 
the brilliance of a composer of Puerto Rican descent who can wrap the history of the founding of America at 144 words per minute. All of the feats should fill us with astonishment at what the species is capable of and gratitude to be alive for this. So I think that really gets at one of the things that was that made this so hard to read and important at the same time is how much caste system is violent and how the thing that you need to fight that is the radical empathy and the joy and the wonderment. Sometimes also burning things to the ground, sure. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I liked the um, the wonderment. I think we need more wonderment. All right, so last question. What are you reading now? I was going to say, Olivia, do you have a different answer than you gave this morning? I do. <laughs> I will not say that I'm also reading this one. I did just finish Jody Armour's book on race, language, equal justice, and the law called N Asterix GGA Theory. And reading these two books in conversation with one another was really powerful. This was an incredible read that deserves to be read carefully and studied. And we will uh, be chatting with uh, Jody about his book later on as part of the Bedrosian Center's Bigger Picture uh, podcast series. So uh, I hope our listeners will uh, stay tuned for that one. I think it'll be really excellent. He's fascinating. She's really good at this cross-marketing. I love it. Um, (laughs) I'm really excited for that too. Um, You are a very good interviewer and um, Jody is one of my favorite people in the world. One of the most generous, radical, empathetic people um, doing the right thing. Uh, One of those front lines workers, I think. So is there anything else you want to say before before I do our close? Nothing. I think um, this is an important read, and I hope hope she wins the Pulitzer for this one. Uh, another Pulitzer for this one. This one, um, I really just love this tapestry. I mean, it's important. It's not easy. So can I go back on what I said and said, I wanted to read one more thing because I think I couldn't choose between the three. And this is, a, it's right before what you were reading, actually, Aubrey. And it starts at the bottom of page 387. We are not personally responsible for what people who look like us did centuries ago, but we are responsible for what good, are ill we do to people alive with us today. We are each of us responsible for each decision that we make that hurts or harms another human being. And I just think that that's, that's important because again, we, we talked about, you know, our individualistic tendencies in this country and no, we're, we're responsible for this moment forward. And I hope that we would lean into it. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, in the next paragraph, we are responsible for our own ignorance or with time and open-hearted enlightenment, our own wisdom. I think that's particularly important in our disinformation age, that there are plenty of tools that you can determine the truth and be a guardian for the truth instead of willfully accepting disinformation. All right. So that's all we have time for today. So thank you so, so, so much, Christine. Olivia and Lavana, um, I really appreciate you willing to read and take the time to talk about this. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you are getting something out of these discussions. And we'd love to hear your questions or your comments, so drop us a line. To find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast app. 
including The Bigger Picture, which uh, Olivia has uh, interviewed Richard Green at all on a great paper. You should check it out. And you'll find links to some of the things that we talked about today at bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. Uh, if you're reading along with us next month, we are reading The Nature of Desert Nature and All We Can Save. They are both a collection of essays on nature and climate change. So thank you again, my guests. You're, this is a great conversation and I learned a lot from you. Thanks to my co-producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the brothers Hedden, Corey and Ryan. We appreciate you making us sound better than we are. Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks coming to you from Southern California. <laughs> <laughs>